Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio, a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. And this is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers what used to be known as the global war on terror and what we describe as the long war. For today's episode of Generation Jihad, we have probably our most frequented guest, I believe, Edmund Fitton Brown. He's a friend of Generation Jihad, and until very recently, the uh, coordinator for the United Nations Security Council's Analytical Support and Sanctions Monitoring Team. And also joining us is Caleb Weiss. He's a senior analyst at the Bridgeway Foundation and longtime contributor to FDE's Long War Journal, also my colleague and friend. Uh, gentlemen, welcome to Generation Jihad. I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. We're going to we're going to talk about the Islamic State. There's a lot going on. Edmund um, Teen, his uh, most recent report, that excellent report from mid-July, it's chock full of details on the Islamic State's organization, its regional networks, and the state of play. We're going to get, we're going to jump into the Islamic State here. I just want to delve into one issue that Edmund and I discussed on that last podcast, and that was the issue of, you know, who is the bigger threat here? I'm going to read directly from, from Edmund's report. This is the only time I'm going to do it on today's podcast. It, and it says this, member states continue to judge that ISIL, which of course is the Islamic State in Iraq and the Levant, poses the more immediate threat in this regard, although some regard Al-Qaeda as the more dangerous group in the longer term. Edmund, I think you know, and everyone knows my view on that. I agree with the latter, Al-Qaeda, given its uh, strategic thinking, its ability to work with others, the fact that it has state sponsorship in, in many case, in some cases, that makes it a more dangerous enemy. It's more patient. Edmund, uh, tell us what you think about that, uh, about that particular statement. Yeah, thanks, Bill. And, and it's great to be here. And I think I, I really like the fact that we're doing this as a sort of a, you know, to sort of complement what we said a month ago. Um, and I think it's really important that we do. Um, this point about the sort of the short term versus the long term threat, it's complicated, but it really matters, um, not least because the wrong kind of terrorist attack taking place is the biggest issue uh, for many member states. Uh, and most of the member states that monitoring team talks to are in a pretty firm agreement that the most likely source of the next big attack is ISIL, not Al-Qaeda. And I think that's really important. It means that whatever we say about Al-Qaeda as a long-term threat, and I think that is right. I think it is. It's, I think its resilience is very threatening. I think the Afghanistan development is very dangerous. Um, and I think its long-term capability is very worrying. Um, and I think it's much more tactically, in fact, actually actually tactically and strategically astute than ISIL. Um, nevertheless, ISIL still has a lot of oomph left over from the, sort, of, it's sort of the way that it flared into life in the previous decade and still a lot of support. And uh, of course, it's propaganda. It's much more effective, uh, or at least it's much more um, palatable, eye-catching than Al-Qaeda's propaganda. And there's another distinction I want to make here, which is between um, where, where attacks take place. So there may be very damaging Al-Qaeda attacks that take place within conflict zones, but where any uh, of these groups is going to get the most traction and the most 
and probably is going to perceive the most value is in a major international attack, an attack that they can launch in a non-conflict zone. And that's much more likely to come from ISIL than from Al-Qaeda. And then the last uh, nuance that I wanted to throw in is just to remember that, you know, in a lot of places, it's not that clear where the distinction lies between what the inspiration is behind an attack. And a lot of European member states have, have reported that they're seeing a kind of generalized inspiration where an attack might take place. And it might not be absolutely clear as to whether it's inspired by ISIL or by Al-Qaeda. Um, and, and, and again, that brings us back to the point, which is, you know, at what point do we have hybrids or new brands emerging? So I think these are all complexities we have to acknowledge. But I think if we're saying where, if, 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 there's, if there were to be a, a large scale attack with strategic impact in North America or in Europe, or in, you know, East Asia, who would be the most likely source of it? Either as the directing force or the inspiring force. And I think the answer to that is ISIS. And I'm going to just add one more thing to that. I, 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 I agree with everything you said on the attack side. I think there's another component of this, which is the threat, which contributes to the attack side, and that's the caliphate building project. And I think that's in very, when I look at this, the ability to have safe haven and state sponsorship is far more important or or to these groups, the success of these groups than any um, individual attack that may be launched inside a, a country. So this is why I also view Al Qaeda. Now they have, they have, look, uh, the Iranian state sponsorship is to me very clear. Um, but more importantly, now they have Afghanistan. They have both safe haven and state sponsorship there. Um, and, you know, as they build that caliphate, as they build those safe havens, then they develop the capacity. And I think that that is something that is often missed in the analysis of, the, um, you know, so the Islamic State may be able to pull off a big attack today, may have more capacity to do so. But I believe in the, this is where I look at it in the longer term. That's why it makes Al Qaeda more dangerous. They're not just, they're not just able to launch an attack or plan or execute attack, but they're able, they're, they're having far more success in their caliphate building project because of their patience. The Islamic State declares a caliphate in, in Syria in 2014. And it's gone by 2000 and, and uh, I'd say 18, 19, right? Al-Qaeda has worked for years to build a, a, an emirate in help the Taliban build their emirate in Afghanistan. 20 years, a, a long project. And I don't see that going anywhere. And that's what's, what makes Al-Qaeda far more dangerous t- to me. Um, yeah, any response to that, Edmund? Uh, yeah. Um, I, first of all, I mean, I agree with you about the impatience of uh, ISIS. Um, and I, by the way, I'm going to say ISIS because, you know, otherwise we're going to end up in a sort of terminology uh, yeah, tongue yeah. twister. <laughs> so I'm going I'm to use ISIS. Um, that impatience definitely, um, it brought them some benefits, but it also brought them, you know, destruction. Um, and I wanted to sort of chip in with Marawi, of course. I mean, let's not, let's not forget what happened in the... Uh, Southern Philippines, yeah. you know, again, the same yes. kind of impatience. They they sort of established their sort of like the sort of little tiny uh, so-called caliphate there as well. But, you know, they couldn't help themselves. You know, they just created a standing target. Uh, they decided to go down fighting and, and, of course, you know, effectively decapitated their operations in Southeast Asia. So I, I, th- I think you're right. I think there's something that's a bit self-defeating about the way they do these things. But 
I'm sure we'll get into this in more detail, but just to flag the point of ISIS is generating these networks overseas with a purpose. Now, how successfully they'll do it is not clear. And I completely agree with you that the project of Al-Qaeda is much more advanced and much more patient. And if you look at the strength of a group like Al-Shabaab, you can see that they're on a level that no ISIS affiliate is even close to. And and so that is definitely true. But there is a downside to the Al-Qaeda approach from the point of view of threat generation. And that is that there is a genuine conflict operating in those um, in those remote provinces, if we can use the ISIS terminology for Al-Qaeda. Um, and that is and that is what are we doing here? Are, do we, is, our lo- is our agenda local or is it regional or is it global? And, and, and that that is a weakness in Al-Qaeda. And although um, the Al-Qaeda global leadership is clear that the agenda should be global, they're having to put up with giving an enormous amount of autonomy to the uh, provinces to make their own decisions on that. And that may slow any kind of global threat regeneration. Yeah, I look at that as, and, I, and Caleb, I'm going to ask you to weigh in here as well. I look at that as, as the global and the local go hand in hand for Al Qaeda, and it's 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 building that glo- that caliphate prov- um, project is, you know, goes it goes from local to regional to global, and you know it goes up and down that chain, right? So I, I think Al Qaeda's leadership understands that. I actually think that's that's all part of the plan. I, to me, the weakness is. It doesn't generate those, the, you know, when they're looking at it this way, it doesn't often or they've gotten away from generating those high profile attacks that were good for drawing in more recruits. But, um, Caleb, anything to add to that discussion? I, I don't want to, I don't want this conversation to dominate the, 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 I got, I think we got a lot to delve into with the Islamic State. But if you have anything to add, Caleb, I'd love to hear it. No, I, I think you summed up what I was going to say of that. Uh, both the local and the global sort of goes hand in hand the way I see it, especially in terms of what, you know, AQ says, both in terms of AQ general command, as well as, you know, the branches of, they don't really differentiate between the local and the global or regional. It's all sort of the same generalized fight for and in defense of Muslims. Um, so I think you summed that up nice, but I do want to get back a little bit to the caliphate building project. Um you know, thinking of these groups as like learning organizations, at what point do we start talking about the Islamic State learning from mistakes? Uh, we know that AQ weren't from mistakes. We know that, you know, they preempted or they acted too soon in, in Mali of enacting their sort of, you know, Islamic emirate in, in Mali, um, which brought about, you know, the French intervention. We know that there's sort of the same thing in Yemen, uh, both in 2011 and 2015. You know, and, and AQ learns from those mistakes of, you know, sort of advertising those statements too soon or before they're ready to be defended. Um, at what point do we start talking about, you know, the Islamic State learning from that? Of Is there really this ideological need to continuously have, you know, an immediate statement or do they start, you know, learning from that and slowing it down, if that makes sense? Or, or is that ideologically, you know, they can't do that? You know, I think that's an open debate, but... Something for me to keep in mind of, we know that AQ weren't from those mistakes. Why can't the Islamic State? Yeah, and I think Edmund brought up a very excellent point, um, which we're going to delve into more, is the how it's building, it's rebuilding these networks. I think we're seeing a more sophisticated Islamic State doing things in the background instead of, you know, full-throated, let's, you know, establish the caliphate. I mean, I think we're seeing some of that. 
part of, you know, a big weakness for the Islamic State to me always is its inability to play well with others and its inability to accept state sponsorship. It's one of the biggest criticism the Islamic State has of Al-Qaeda. And I think until we see it do those, it's to, to be more accommodating on these two issues, it's going to limit its ability. But it's possible the Islamic State learns over time. And that's... um and if that's the case, then you're going to have two very sophisticated terrorist organizations out there in competition. Just a little bit of caution about how strategically coherent they are. They, they didn't make it work well in Syria. They really didn't. Um, and you got the clash between Harassadine and uh, Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, and that is still not resolved. And they had um, external attack aspirations uh, as al-Qaeda in Syria, and they couldn't carry them out. They couldn't resource them, and they couldn't staff them. They couldn't actually make them happen. So I, 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 don't, I think we need to be slightly careful about thinking that al-Qaeda will always get this right. There's no declared contradiction in the regional agenda and the global agenda. But in the case of al-Shabaab, you can clearly see that they put all of their effort into the either Somali or near neighborhood. And there's a sort of a understanding, I think, between them and and Al Qaeda that you know th- th- this is okay, and it works, but it's but it's a slow process. And so this is why, in the end, I think we all agree that the longer term threat is greater from Al Qaeda. But if you're the security services in Europe or in North America or in other non conflict zones, you can't think about primarily what's going to happen in five years' time. What's going to worry you is what might happen in six months' time or, or tomorrow. And, and so that's why I think this is, a, it, this is an interesting creative tension, and I understand why it's difficult for uh, Western authorities to sort, of, to, to sort of ignore that the more immediate threat is from ISIS. Um, and um, on that point about learning, from, learning the lessons, I, I think that's a really key point. It's really good to go back and remember what happened uh, in uh, various places where al-Qaeda has been through that process. Um, and Yemen is a good example of that that I remember very well. Um, so that temptation to, to dominate space, it's understandable. In a way, it's necessary. Um, but you've got to also be careful that you don't then draw down massive counterterrorism resources against you. Um, and in that respect, um, I think another point that's worth making here is that ISIS, I think, is more focused on the absolute determination to revive the global threat. All, the propaganda is all about that. You know, it's, it's all about this is what we've got to do. Where I think they have a weakness is that, unlike Al Qaeda, there is a sense of, you know, a sort of an assumption that everybody else should simply do the bidding of the leadership. And we don't know how that plays out over time. You know, for now, there's a reasonable level of expression of cohesiveness in ISIS, but may not always occur. Um, You know, it may be that some of the regional um, uh, presences will feel a little taken for granted. You know, we do all the sacrifice and, and we have no voice in how things are supposed to work. And then the very last point that I want to make on this is the leadership. We've got a new leader of ISIS. We don't yet know what direction he's going to take them. And so that, I think, is a really important point for monitoring. Go ahead, Caleb. Go ahead. No, I was just going to segue into who do you think the actual, you know, Abu al-Hassan is? I know that your recent report mentions three possible candidates, but 
Is there one that sort of like, you know, jumps out as the most, you know, likely candidate for you? It's really hard to say, Caleb. I mean, um, I think the, uh, I think what I would say is that I'm privately skeptical about Sumaidai as a candidate, even though he's the one who's had the most airplay. Um, I feel that there are good reasons why it probably isn't him. Um, you know, reading between the lines, and this is, this is where one can go a little bit beyond what's in the report, because the report will always just, you know, as it has to, quite rightly, stick to what we're hearing from member states. But that also means that we sometimes leave out what's appearing from member states indirectly, but we can't verify it because we've not ourselves heard it from a member, from a member state. But there's a sense that probably the Turks did get Sumaidai. And I don't believe that the leader of ISIS would have been in Turkey. So, you know, if that were true, um, then that would rule him out. And so, you know, then there was the question of Baghdadi's brother. Um, and, you know, I, I just don't know on that one. But, uh, but there was, there's not much member state enthusiasm behind that analysis either. Um, so I, I have to say, I feel the jury is still out. Awesome. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't know as well as you do on that question. It's just, you know, there's like you said, a lot of airplay with Suma, the, the one that Turkey supposedly got, um, which it's cool to hear you talk about that because that was sort of an open question as well of like, who the hell did Turkey actually arrest? Um, and that was, you know, sort of a debate a few months ago when that happened. Um, but yeah, this is an open-ended question. I don't know if we'll ever figure out. It took forever to figure out who, you know, Abu Ibrahim actually was. Oh, I, I think I think we know who Abu Ibrahim was. I think that's clear enough. Yeah. Well, I mean, when he was announced, we didn't know who he was at first, but it was a long investigation. Eventually, found out. I suspect the same thing will happen here. Yes, I, I agree. I, I think that's where it's going. Really is interesting how opaque the process is for the leadership of the Islamic State versus Al Qaeda, where we know these are established individuals. I mean, we may not know who's going to succeed Zawahiri, but we have a good idea. The individuals who may succeed him, that we have the background on them, we have the bios on them, we know who the very likely candidates. Whereas the Islamic State keeps us guessing. I always find that to be an interesting dynamic, right. and and also to be a weakness because it has to cause guessing within the uh, leadership of the Islamic state within their what they call their provinces right or their right well that, i mean that's what what edmund was saying about you know the long term sort of you know danger for is of like do these anonymized leaders pose a long term problem for them of you know the the rank and file in you know DRC for instance pledging allegiance to you know Abu Hassan who they don't really know who that is does that pose a long term threat for them of having these anonymous kunya leaders yeah, I mean, here's a couple of questions. I mean, with in the case of Abu Ibrahim, um, you know, was he partly the victim of just frustration at this the extreme precautions that he was having to take just to keep just to remain invisible? You know, and, and we we pointed out that risk while he was still alive. You know that he, you know that there was a danger that people were saying, "Well, who is this guy? You know, he never speaks. We only ever hear from the spokesperson." and so I wonder whether that sort of whether that ultimately uh, affects someone like him. And then with a the new guy, of course, you know, one of the most interesting things about the 
press coverage of the arrest of Sumaydai, if it was Sumaydai in Turkey, is what does ISIS do with that? Because, you know, they've set up the succession. They've made the announcement through a new spokesperson. They've done all the choreography of all the pledges of allegiance. And then somebody says, and there's a lot of airplay around it, oh, he's been arrested in Turkey. Now, I think probably he wasn't. Or probably, at any rate, the leader of ISIS, I think, is probably still at liberty. But what does ISIS do by way of response? Because as you say, Caleb, a lot of their guys around the world, they read that report and they have no, they have no way of, uh, of suspecting it of being untrue, other than that they suspect that their enemies would always lie. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. Today, we have Edmund Fitton Brown. He's the, until recently, the coordinator for the United Nations Security Council's analytical support and sanctions monitoring team. Also, we have Caleb Weiss. He's a senior analyst at the Bridgeway Foundation and a longtime contributor to FDD's Long War Journal. Gentlemen, the Islamic State in Africa. Let's, let's get started. I think, uh, I think the right place to start here is uh, is Mozambique. What do you think, Caleb? Yeah, which is the like let's follow the order of the report. I think that makes the most sense for the listeners. Edmund, what's what's going on in uh, Mozambique? What's the Islamic State network look like there? Well, absolutely, and just just a very quickly by way of introduction, you know, each of our last three reports has had one sort of big thing that's that sort of jumped out as the sort of the headline, and. It was the it was the one it was the one three ago. Um, in other words, the one that was um, published in July 2021 that really mo- really made it on Mozambique because, of course, there was that dramatic development um, around the uh, the town of Palma um, in, uh, in in early 2021. And then, of course, the next report was dominated by Afghanistan, and then the most recent report was dominated by events in Syria uh, and the changes in the leadership of uh, ISIS. Um, but of course, none of the concerns about Africa have gone away or uh, been resolved. Um, what did happen, of course, in Mozambique was that the, the, the local government did accept some assistance from friendly countries. And that assistance did seem to make a difference um, in the sense that the, uh, the momentum that the local group, um, uh, Ansar Sunawal al Jamaa, ASWJ, or I think colloquially they call them Al-Shabaab locally, but we tend not to say that because it creates confusion because it's not directly related to Al-Shabaab in Somalia. Um, but ASWJ or uh, ISIL Mozambique, as ISIL would have it, or ISIL Central Africa province, as they uh, are also sometimes uh, described. Um, those, uh, you know, the... the they have struggled a little bit more over the past year. They've suffered a lot of CT pushback, and they've also suffered from some environmental difficulties, you know, um, uh, some, some issues of drought and famine, um, difficulty of uh, subsistence for fighters and, and, and dependents and, and that sort of thing. Um, even so, um, it would be quite wrong to suggest that the situation in, in, in Mozambique has been resolved. Um, I, I think, you know, at one point we were talking about a potential threat to the provincial capital of Pemba. We see that as having receded uh, in the sense that we don't think it's an imminent threat. 
Um, but I think the uh, the risk that those fighters um, who are still at large, still able to attack small villages pretty much at will, uh, area of operations somewhat spreading, including somewhat outside uh, Cabo Delgado province, um, suggests that this uh, story is going to have a number of future episodes. The report notes that there's links between ASWJ and the Allied Democratic Forces, or ADF, what's also known as the ADF in the Congo. There's a lot of information in open source on this. Um, there's a discussion of movements of fighters between the groups. Uh, t- talk more about that. And Caleb, also, I'd like to hear you weigh in on this as well. I'll, I'll just say a few words, Bill, and then move it to Caleb, because I think Caleb is more, more over the detail of this than I am. But um, I, I think from the point of view of the monitoring team, again, we have to rely on what we've directly received from member states. And so there, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's clearly an enormous complexity about the way that the uh, various offshoots of ISIS uh, interact in Africa. But the key here is to mention the Al-Qarar office in Somalia. So ISIS has organized these hubs and spokes, and the report is full of uh, it, you know, it's, it's probably the most detailed account published of the ISIS hubs and spokes, the regional networks that they've created. And the hub of their, what we might almost refer to as, I mean, some people call it ISCAP, Central Africa province, but we tend to think of it as their eastern, central and southern African network. Um, the hub of that is in Somalia. It's in Puntland in Somalia. And the Al-Qarar office is the uh, hub established by the ISIS General Directorate of Provinces. So that's the leadership in Iraq and Syria that has appointed somebody to act as a coordinator based in Somalia. But rather than that person being responsible just for Somalia, that person is responsible for ISIS interests in the wider region. So... That's the key node point. And up to now, the evidence we've seen tends to link Somalia to Mozambique and Somalia to DRC. We haven't seen much evidence of direct links between DRC and Somalia, but we have seen also evidence of links between Somalia and South Africa, Somalia and various other locations uh, in East, Central, and Southern Africa. And the other thing we report in our uh, in our latest report is that the Alcarar office appears to have some kind of financial remit that even goes beyond that regional network and has some relevance for ISIS interests elsewhere in Africa. So, for example, in West Africa, and to some degree even outside Africa, uh, specifically uh, with reference to Afghanistan. So this is an emerging picture, and we only have a, I would say we have a very partial sketch of this picture, and I'm sure there is a lot in terms of crossover, direct crossover between Mozambique and DRC, Um, but at the moment, we're seeing it more in terms of these tentacles emanating from Somalia. I'm going to jump in real quick, and then Caleb, turn it over to you. Um, It's very Al-Qaeda-like, right? We see this with the Al-Qaeda branches. Um, sharing of information, sharing of fighters, sharing of, you know, cash going back and forth, coordination, 
things of that nature. So I, I find that this this is what, it, to me, on the Islamic State side of this report, I found to be the most fascinating, the establishment of these offices, which I kind of view to be somewhat analogous to Al-Qaeda's branches or what people call their affiliates and what Al-Qaeda actually itself at least used to describe as its theaters. So go ahead, Caleb. Well, I just want to jump back into what he said about Al-Qarar sending money sort of to ISKP in Afghanistan because, you know, I'm a nerd and this is this is fascinating to me. Um, but this is a general question for you, Edmund, of like, does this signify, you know, sort of the growing importance of Al-Qarar or IS Somali in general? Or why do you think that, you know, the central leadership has tasked that regional hub with with that? Or is that sort of a reflection of the money coming out of that that node? Or, or, or why do you think that is? That's a really interesting question. And we try to get into that in the report. But as, as always, we, we leave the picture where we have evidence and we, we, we don't sort of go very far down the track of it might be this or it might be that. Um, certainly what seems to be happening with these ISIS regional networks is that they're reinforcing success. So where it's working, they are then sort of saying, well, that's great. Let's do more of that. And where it's not really working, as in Libya, for example, which we mentioned as having been a sort of rather withered hub, um, then, you know, they're sort of they're saying, OK, well, that's not that's not seeming to pan out in the way that we would have hoped. So I would speculate that what's happened is that Al-Qarar office has been so well established and possibly because the extent of the Somali diaspora in Africa um, has been able to show its effectiveness not just in these, this outreach into Mozambique, DRC, South Africa, um, other parts of the region, but also across into Western Africa. And so I think there may be an element, therefore, of this sort of, you know, just reinforcing success. You know, this is what they're good at. In terms of raising the money, um, we think there is some local raising of money, um, but it's not clear to us how much of the money that they move is raised locally and how much of it is actually them acting as a relay point for funds coming from elsewhere. And then why? Why would they be particularly good at this? I mean, it may be, again, you know, something Hawala-type work operating through Somali diaspora. Um, but also the question is, what would be the relay point between Somalia and Afghanistan? Because it's not, that's not immediately obvious. We do think one of the remaining, few remaining relevances of ISIS in Yemen is that it has a strong uh, link across the Red Sea uh, from Yemen to ISIS in Somalia. So maybe a relay through Yemen could be relevant there. But also, of course, it could equally be, you know, you've got very significant Somali diaspora elsewhere in the world. Um, and there was even one, um, you know, which we did mention this, but it was a very, very sort of, one of those things where we just say, we're going to mention this because it's interesting, but we have no, no way of uh, evaluating uh, how likely it is. But there was one, even one suggestion that there might have been a relay through the U United Kingdom. Um, so you can kind of see how that could work. But I, I still remain, I, my feeling is that we need to monitor this. And I, I, I say we, but I mean, this is my, my beloved colleagues whom I've left behind. You know, this is their challenge and we'll see what they come up with in December. Uh, when the next report is being written, um, but this is one of their challenges: is to is to bottom this out to say, okay, so so you know we believe that Al Qarar office has this financial role, you know, possibly quasi globally. How does it work? 
you know, I know we're getting a little off t- uh, off our you know planned outline here, but this is fascinating to me, and and I I like what you said about the you know the importance of the Hawala network, uh, especially within the Somali di- diaspora. I mean, Somalia is a country that you know didn't have a central bank until 2012, and it's still a country that relies heavily on foreign remittances from the diaspora through Hawala or through other you know money transfer services. So to me, my my working assumption has always been because of that. Of uh, they've already have these established diaspora networks around the world, based around the Somali diaspora using Hawala, and then, you know it it does work, and to an extent, you know, kind of untraceable or, or harder to track than, than most other sort of you know money transfers. Um, and you know, Somali sort of has the history of remittances of you know Hawala being used for you know terrorism financing or potential terrorism financing. There was that case and. What, 2002 or 2003 of Albarica of the Somali Hawala system that was shut down for supposedly funding AQ. I mean, so there's a history of sort of these Hawala networks within the Somali diaspora. So uh, I like that you mentioned that, like, that's always been my working assumption of like, that makes the most sense to me. And then with just how globally spread out that diaspora is. And I think this is a great example of, of the Islamic State leveraging strengths of the organization. The Islamic State in Somalia isn't strong as, you know, Shabab is the dominant force there. Islamic State is, you know, however you want to rank it on the scale, but it's, it's insignificant basically compared to what Al Shabab is doing. Operationally, yes. Yeah. Yet plays a key node within the Islamic State's network. And I think that's probably a part of learning. The Islamic State tried to reestablish itself as a, as a an option against Shabab, it really hasn't done it, but yet it's leveraged this Al Qaeda office, and um, so it's you know leveraging the success of a, of of a part of a network. Maybe it didn't go as planned, but it's it certainly took advantage of it. I think there's another point that I just just highlight again. We we, we talk about this a little in the report, which is um, the importance of what may be quite significant donations from private individuals. Um, uh, we mentioned um, Ugandan individuals, uh, also South African, uh, and also some do- donations uh, that have been raised from individuals actually resident in South Africa. And again, I'm making a connection here that I can't substantiate, and it's not it's not in the report because it can't be substantiated. But there is clearly some uh, potentially significant source of funding from private donations within Africa. And if that Somali diaspora network and Hawala network is processing that, involved in that, you can see how that could make sense. You could have strategically significant sums of money that have to be moved to the right location where they're needed. And maybe that helps to explain the significance of Al-Qarar office. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I don't, I think that's a very reasonable assumption and it should be, I'm certain it is with uh, being investigated. Um, that it, it, you know, it's, it's amazing. You know, the Hawala networks have been a problem from the beginning and here we are in 2022 still discussing them to this day. I find that fascinating and, and, uh, frustrating and disappointing all at the same time. So. Let's um quickly talk about the the ADF in the uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo. Um, I think this is a uh, a growing strength of the Islamic State um, in Africa. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, uh, Edmund? Yes, um, it's interesting this because we 
it's right on the edge, isn't it, between um, Central Africa and uh, East Africa. And in fact, uh, in our report, we, we we slightly distinguish between what's happening in DRC and Uganda and Rwanda on that basis. Um, whereas, of course, they're right next to each other. Um, and I, I mean, you know, of course, the, one of the most interesting things about this, and uh, I want to defer to Caleb on this because he knows far, far more in detail than I do, but but you know, again, this is a case of a pre-existing conflict um, and pre-existing groups uh, that have you know have now sort of identi- you know self-identified as as uh, as ISIS affiliate, um, and ISIS have accepted that, and uh, something is clearly growing in significance. And whereas, um, as I said, in early 2021, within this broad area, we saw the developments in Mozambique as being by far the most eye-catching. The experience of the last year or so has actually been slightly more alarming in, I think, in DRC and uh, Uganda and Rwanda, uh, and, and, and generally in regards to the ADF, than it has been in relation to ASWJ in Mozambique. And one of the key things I think here is, um, first of all, you've got a very easy transnational sort of issue here. You know, the, the fact is that these, uh, many of these guys in Eastern DRC, they're actually Ugandan. Um, so almost by definition, this is an international issue. Um, We've seen more evidence of foreign terrorist fighters present in that theatre than we have in Cabo Delgado in um, northern Mozambique. Now, again, in northern Mozambique, there's the clear crossover with Tanzania, and a lot of the uh, ASWJ people are Tanzanians. But um, those—that's effectively those are sort of you know border people. Um, But people coming from further afield. We see more evidence of that in with ADF. And we highlighted, um, I think it was in our previous report published in January, uh, a particularly concerning Jordanian who had been picked up um, in, uh, in Eastern DRC. And then in the latest report, uh, we've talked about uh, the arrest of Kenyans, Tanzanians, Somalis um, in the Eastern DRC. Um, so we, I think we've come to the view that the development of ISIS Central Africa province, if we want to call it that, is probably now a little bit more advanced in, um, in the Eastern DRC than it is in Northern Mozambique. And I also come back to, there was, a, there was a jailbreak a couple of years ago, and that remains of concern to me because that was a huge jailbreak, freeing, um, I, think, I think it was almost 2,000 uh, inmates. So, you know, what you... Of course, you still have a chaotic picture. You've got a lot of militias, a lot of uh, organized criminals, more or less organized criminals. Um, And ISIS isn't the only game in town, but I think it is growing in significance uh, in in that part of the ADF that is fully committed to ISIS. Yeah. uh, I mean, Edwin, you nailed nailed that. Um, I I think we're sort of seeing the same thing, at least... uh, you know, what we, me and my, my colleagues at Bridgeway Foundation have written about openly of, of sort of, you know, 2021 did see an influx of, you know, foreign fighters, particularly Kenyans, Tanzanians. Um, and you mentioned that in a report of at least one of them, a uh, prominent one who was featured in a beheading video, arrested. 
um, you know, a sort of the big concern with those guys are, you know, some of them do have prior experience with other militant groups, um, which can bring, you know, sort of expertise or, you know, a, you know, shorten the knowledge gap for the ADF um, in terms of capabilities. I know that's something that, you know, should be worrying to the, to the region. Um, another thing I, I, I like to think about, um, you know, is what is the potential for sort of the ADF being like this regional hub for the Islamic State across East Africa of being sort of like a training and experience hub of these foreigners who, you know, want battlefield experience, who want training. You know, they make their way to Congo. Um, they fight a bit for the for the ADF. They, they get trained and then go back to their countries of origin. Um, and you have the potential for new attacks, you know, there, um, which is something that we talked about in a, in a report for CTC earlier this year. Um, that's combating terrorism center. Um, I, I think that's the, the, the worrying thing to me about the Islamic state sort of what we suspect is their plans for the ADF of not only being sort of a, a financial hub, but sort of this regional, you know, attack hub. Um, cause you mentioned the, the plot in Rwanda that happened, you know, last September and October. Um, there was sort of, you know, you know, uh, all sorts of plots and bombings in Uganda last year. Um, you know, there was, you know, bombings, you know, in DRC, um, particularly one in Goma, um, that, you know, I don't know if, can technically talk about because it was a leaked UN report um, from the GOE that talked about uh, <laughs> a bombing in Goma that was probably committed by ADF, um, which if that's true, that's, you know, that's a worrying development because Goma is the largest city in Eastern Congo. Um, if that, that was the ADF, you know, that, that represents a you know, large shift away from their AO um, in Congo uh, for them to be able to pull that off. Um, but then, you know, you talk about the, the jailbreak in 2020, but they just did a jailbreak last month or two months ago. Uh, I think it was last month, actually, in August, in Butimba, which is another city in eastern Congo, um, that's sort of south of their normal AO, uh, where they freed like 800 inmates. You know, a few hundred of them have been recaptured, but I mean, there's still a sizable chunk of you know inmates who are going to join the group from that. Um, so it, it's a group that is, I think, rising in strength, like Edmund said, and I, I think that's absolutely true, and it, it's part of. I think the Islamic State's wider plan for East Africa. Uh, they're sort of, you know, celebrating successes. It's telling him, you know, it, it's certainly, you know, wanting them to be more successful for that, the whole regional attack hub, if that makes sense. This is the least way I think it, it's playing out. It could certainly be wrong. Um, but it makes the most sense to me, of, certainly, of what we saw last year with all the attacks and attack plots. Um, sort of around East Africa. I mean, just to say uh, great points, Kayla, I agree with all of that. Um, again, I think the idea that you could have, as it were, an organizational and financial hub in Somalia, but the recognition that the best, the best fighting location would be Eastern DRC makes a lot of sense to me. And I think this is one of the reasons why I think a critical factor in all of this is we must monitor the evolution of the FTF picture. And that's why, you know, I think both of us have highlighted these, the, you know, the growing evidence of FTFs in DRC, mainly Africans, but there was the Jordanian guy and the question of what capability he was bringing in. And I think if we see this continue to grow, then, then I, think I think your hypothesis that this is becoming a training ground, I think, would, uh, would, 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 would grow in weight. 
Right. And just to put it in local context, because you mentioned, you know, ADF is not the only player in town, which they're not. They're, there's 120 armed groups across eastern Congo. But I think one point people need to realize is that ADF is by far the most deadly of all of eastern Congo's sort of militias. And that that in and of itself is, is a worrying development. Yeah. And the, so the last point about FTS, which I should, perhaps should have made earlier, is it's not just these you know what capability these guys bring and what capability they develop while they're in theater it's the fact that this is they they embody the connection between the regional agenda and the and the global agenda you know if you've got ftfs there they're also thinking about what could we do in kenya what could we do you know further afield um and 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 that's where i think this again it comes back to the point that you made so ably earlier on bill and that and that is that uh, you know you create your safe haven and then you you build your capability and then you project your threat back to the non-conflict zones. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's, uh, we could discuss all of these topics in, in depth. I'm going to try and, sweep, you know, get, get, get finished the sweep of Africa and then move on. Um, you had mentioned jailbreak. So I think that was a good segue to move over to Islamic State West Africa province and, um, there was a major jailbreak um, just outside the capital of Nigeria. Um, but I, before we, we just move into Islamic State West Africa province, I think this, this is probably a, a good test case where the Islamic State um, made some mistakes of not dealing with the local, right? With Boko Haram, when, when West Africa province was formed, you had some issues. Abu Bakr Shakal, who was a very interesting character in the jihad um so to speak um you know he and his faction within there was were not happy with being subsumed to west africa province um so you had a little bit of problems there but i still think the islamic state has had a lot of success particularly in uh, west africa in west africa and nigeria specifically so tell us uh, tell us a little bit about what's going on in um for islamic state west africa province yeah, so I mean, at no stage has West Africa been the dominant theme of one of our reports. But what I can say is that in most of the reports that we've written over the last few years, it's been a kind of a unbroken story of success for ISIS and very few setbacks. And even the setbacks that they have had, they seem to, they, you know, you mentioned earlier, do they learn from things? They do seem to have learned uh, in, in uh, West Africa province. They, they show signs of being able to learn. I mean, one of the reasons that they couldn't live with Shakal was because he was just such a maverick, no discipline at all. And, you know, one thing at least you can say of West Africa province is that they're pretty disciplined. Um, and they, they operate in a way they're very brutal. Of course they are very brutal, but I would say that they're, that their MO there has not been as sort of self-defeating as the kind of the gleeful sadism has been in some other places. They're a little bit more judicious in the way that they project their, uh, you know, the way they intimidate, the way that they force people to collaborate with them. Um, and the worrying thing from the Monterey team's point of view was just to sort of see, you know, semester after semester in which they had significant successes, you know, they were successfully attacking the Nigerian military, successfully mounting uh, operations in Niger and Chad and Cameroon, and very few setbacks. And, you know, they were getting war spoils from this. They were getting military equipment and they were getting uh, arms and am ammunition. Um, and so then you had the, 
the sort of the, the showdown with Chacal in the Sambisa forest, which took place. And that, again, came out in West Africa province's favour. They, you know, they killed Chacal. And what we said in our latest report is that some of the sort of subsuming of Chacal's people into West Africa province, that hasn't been straightforward. It's been, it's been tricky. They've got, they have grown in strength. They have absorbed some of Chacal's fighters. But some are still operating as sort of, you know, Chacal legacy elements, and some have surrendered to the um, Nigerian, well, in fact, a very large number of the sort of the, of the Chacal community surrendered to the Nigerian authorities. Um, but still, we now put West Africa province as numerically the strongest ISIS province in the world outside the core region. So numerically stronger than Khorasan. And that's really quite something. Um, so the question then arises, you know, how, how strategically significant is this? The other point, again, coming back to our um, regional networks model, is that the, you know, of the three most successful ISIS regional networks and coordinating offices, two of them are in Africa. We already mentioned the Al-Qarar office in Somalia. The other one is Al-Furqan office, which is in the Lake Chad Basin essentially in northeastern Nigeria and on those borders um, that I mentioned. And the third, globally speaking, is the al-Sadiq office in Afghanistan. So this is another successful office, another office that they've reinforced. It has some kind of uh, authority over or support role for the so-called Greater Sahara province, um, the people who are operating in the sort of further west in the the Mali, Niger, Burkina Faso sort of border area. Um, and uh, we also noted there that quite a strong ISIS um, core involvement in the affairs of West Africa province and the al Khan office. Um, and this was embodied by uh, Barnawi, Abu Musab al-Barnawi, who went back and forth between being the emir of West Africa province and being the head of the Alpha Khan office. Now, we don't know his current status. The Nigerians say he's been killed. Um, but we, at least my last time, when I, last, when, I was, when I left the monitoring team, we still hadn't seen uh, persuasive reporting to, to so that we, we, couldn't, we couldn't say that. We, we, we just said, well, you know, there are reports that he's been killed, but we had seen other reports that he might have reverted to his role as head of the Alpha Khan office. So I don't know what the situation is with Barnawi, but it is striking that, one of the few things where West African province has had a little bit of chaos, it has been in the leadership, you know, sort of people coming and going, rivalry, um, you know, people in significant roles being deposed, people being uh, killed, you know, sort of, as it were, executed internally by, the, by West Africa province. But that never seems to disrupt them. It seems that the sort of the strategic direction that they're taking and their very successful tactics have continued. Very briefly, we're going to move real quickly through um, this discussion. What's the um, strate- what do you view the strategic threat um, versus um, between the Islamic State Greater Sahara versus Al Qaeda? Who in, in West Africa? Who seems to have a or actually both theaters, right? The, the Greater Sahara and West Africa. Who seems to have the upper hand in this? Uh, this is obviously, I don't think this is something discussed in the report. More of your personal assessment of that, Edmund. So further east, um, particularly in the Lake Chad Basin, definitely ISIS has the upper hand. 
further west in uh, Mali, Burkina Faso, uh, no doubt Al-Qaeda has the upper hand. Um, so Greater Sahara province of ISIS, you know, it, it, it can't be ignored, but it's relatively small. And it's overmatched by Jainim. And whenever they've come to blows, Jainim, excuse me, you know, Jainim, the local Al-Qaeda uh, coalition, um, has tended to get the upper hand. And there's a sense that Jainim has a very, very high degree of strategic awareness uh, of what it's trying to achieve. And this is, again, comes back to your earlier point, you know, why we should be more worried about Al-Qaeda. Because if anyone is actually going to uh, overturn these rather fragile states like Mali, like Burkina Faso, even some um, some some intrusion into the littoral states. We've seen activity in Senegal. We've seen activity in Cote d'Ivoire. We've seen activity in uh, in Togo and Benin. So um, that sort of long term incubating threat, where you could have a failed state or you could have a very substantial tract of territory. That is a safe haven for a terrorist group to generate uh, a an external operational capability. Um, certainly, the further west you go, that threat is almost exclusively from Al Qaeda. But I, I am still very concerned about ISIS West Africa province. And again, this is where I worry about what we don't know. We don't know what the situation is with foreign terrorist fighters in the Lake Chad basin. We've seen reports of some. Uh, they've talked about light-skinned Arabs. Um, and there's some suggestion you might have some Libyans there or maybe some other North Africans there, uh, but we just don't know. We were never given a really authoritative uh, briefing on that. But it's one to watch because, as I said, it's the largest uh, ISIS province outside the core region by number. It's the one that has had the most sort of unbroken period of local successes. Um, and so if you were to add to that... Um, a strong connectivity to the outside, um, and that could, you know, of course, we know we know of some connectivity between that theatre and Libya. Um, but if we could extend that, then to say that you've got foreign fighters, uh, then you would be looking for that to turn into an external threat capability before too long. Caleb, any thoughts? I'm in agreement with you, Edmund. Yeah, I, I think Edmund knocked this one out of the park uh, as usual. As usual. Um, but it, sort of going back to, to ISGS and Sahel and, and the Watora West Africa, I think the greatest threat that ISGS poses, at least you know in the short term, is the the scale of massacres that they can commit. Um, this is a group that that is capable of killing hundreds of civilians, which which they do, you know, sort of on a routine basis, you know, sort of you know every few months. Um, but that's not necessarily a strategic threat. I think uh, Edmund was right. The JNIM, the local Al Qaeda branch coalition, whatever you want to call it, is definitely the the longer strategic threat. I mean, this is this is an area that you know in 2007, you know, Yunus Al Maratani, who was you know sort of the dual hatted you know AQIM AQ senior leader, wrote a report you know talking about the chances of four jihad across West Africa, and to uh, you know a, a certain degree, AQ especially JNIM is sort of following in that playbook of you know these are the communities we could reach, these are the areas that you know have the greatest chance of success for jihad. Um, and, you know, some of the areas they talked about were Senegal, were, you know, northern Benin, were Burkina, were, you know, southern central Mali. I mean, so this is sort of, you know, a thing that they've been planning for a long time and are able to, you know, now finally actualize. 
Um, and, you know, Edmund talked about the, the spread into to the littorals, but that can only happen with, you know, sort of a complete meltdown of Burkina Faso. Uh, a lot of this is emanating from Burkina Faso and, you know, outside of, you know, the central regions where Ouagadougou is, really it's JNIM with some ISGS remnants, but it's largely JNIM attacking all sort of around Burkina and then sort of seeping into the littorals from there. And to me, I think that's a, a giant strategic threat that, you know, something that the, the, the region itself is struggling to contain. Um, and, and certainly the French and other Europeans are, this is, this is the next thing to try to combat of how do we stop that flow into West Africa, the littoral West Africa. And that's not something that, you know, I certainly don't have the answers to right now, but this is something that, you know, five years from now, this is something that people should be worried about of, you know, just how far the, the violence emanating from Mali and Burkina Faso will spread. Um, and not to paint, you know, a certain dire picture right now, but I, it, it's hard to be optimistic about the future for West Africa. Well, well said, Caleb. Um, I'm Bill Raggio. This is Generation Jihad uh, joining us today to talk about the local, the regional and the global threat posed by the Islamic State is Edmund Fitton Brown and Caleb Weiss. One more, we're going to touch on one more area very quickly on, uh, in North Africa, particularly in Libya. Um, I think this is just an interesting case for both, not just the Islamic State, for Al Qaeda, where their footprint, footprint has greatly decreased. It seems that both groups have had the same problems. They're currently high, basically hiding in the southern desert. But, you know, I think the, the fact that they're there, Edmund, I think your report said that there was about a hundred Islamic State fighters. Uh, thought to be there. Um, that obviously that's what the member states are telling you. It may be more. It may be less. We don't really know. I'm always skeptical of the, of estimates like that because of uh, my experience with Afghanistan. But you know what? These are groups that you, you just can't take your eyes off these groups. I mean, I, I think that Ansaru in Nigeria is, uh, which is basically an Al Qaeda, uh, allied or Al Qaeda link group. In Nigeria, they went moribund for multiple years and then they re reemerged after regrouping and restructuring and have stepped up attacks. Caleb has done some excellent work on that. Um, but the, yeah, Edmund, talk to us a, just briefly about Libya and the problems the Islamic State has experienced there. Yeah, absolutely, Bill. I mean, I think, um, I think the problem was again a, a little bit as we referred to earlier, sort of um, their strategic impatience, their, uh, that tendency to overreach and burn out. So, you know, they, they, uh, they, they, they made some progress. Uh, at one point, I, I think when I first joined the monitoring team in 2017, it was, it was the, uh, it was the remote province in Libya that was regarded as the, as the one most likely, uh, to emerge as the host of a new, um, external attack capability. Um, and they just didn't handle it well. Um, and I think the, I think Libya is troubling for a whole set of for a whole set of reasons, um, it's it's an unmanageable um, sort of you know vacuum of uh, of authority of law and order. Somehow or other, that seems also to some degree to apply to militias. I mean, militias also find it very hard to establish themselves or to project any kind of um, you know sort of sustained uh, influence outside whatever is their immediate sort of you know. Uh, home area or center of center of, uh, of gravity. And I think this has been the case with uh, ISIS, and I think it's been the case with Al-Qaeda as well. And so 
I, I think you're yeah, probably, and I think our figures for ISIS in Libya probably understate the problem. I suspect that there's a much higher number of people with sort of nagging sympathies for ISIS and you know, some unconfirmed reports that ISIS might have, you know, might might have some, you know, shell companies or, or fundraising capabilities that we're not clearly seeing. Um, and I, that would sort of make sense in a way. You would not expect, you would expect that in that kind of chaotic environment that there would be a fair amount of uh, potential support for groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Um, but I still think that really the overwhelming picture in Libya is it's that security vacuum and what that means for everybody. It means what it means for counterterrorism, but what it also means for counter-trafficking, um, and, you know, sort of any form of law enforcement, any form of effective international diplomatic and security engagement uh, with Libyan authorities. So we still consider Libya to be a major worry in a major arena, but just not one in which the groups have taken particularly persuasive shape. Wait, just a question about this. You mentioned the shell companies, and this may have been what you were referring to, but I believe it was earlier this year, was it Spain that dismantled this little financial network that was supposedly shifting money from, you know, shell companies and Hawaii network into IS Libya? Is that what you were referring to? Or are there more nodes like this out there? Uh, I wasn't referring specifically to that, but there is some, some, some uh, reports again, you know, because we, you know, uh, because we only re- report from member states. So, so right. you know, there's nothing in the report about this, but, but, you know, just, just, just uh, things that have been, you know, said to us by, by non-member state interlocutors. Uh, concerns that maybe we understate the strength of, you know, the numerical strength of ISIS in Libya. That's a, certainly an interesting development. I think that deserves more attention and, and research for sure. Yeah, because I, I, so. I think people people definitely have written off IS Libya as sort of, you know, dead and gone. But you know, as Bill stated with you know Ansaru, of like people made the same assumption about them uh, for for four years between 2015 and 2019, and now they're back. Um, so certainly, you know, what's the potential for IS Libya to sort of be in the same stage where they're regrouping and restructuring? But a few years from now, they may be, you know, back with a vengeance. I totally agree with you. And I mean, you know, we, we, we make the point in the report that the, that the uh, network hub that was established in Libya seems not to have um, thrived. And again, that goes to my point about the, the sort of the shape or the organization of ISIS and indeed Al-Qaeda in Libya not having... Uh, emerged uh, in the way that we feared or thought that it might. But I think the latent problem in Libya is huge. This, you know, look, uh, I always go back to, you know, people are always very quick to declare these groups dead. I mean, not not to go to Afghanistan, but I will. How many times was Al-Qaeda a D word? Dead, done, decimated, defeated, degraded. Um, we could go on and on and most written. And then we add a G word to that. President Biden said gone. And then we kill Zawahiri within a year of, uh, you know, you just can't write these groups off. And I always say they're, you know, it's not that Al Qaeda is returned or not that the Islamic State has returned. They were never gone to begin with. They just we may have misest- um We may have underestimated their presence or their strength there or in the case, I think, in the case of Libya for both Al Qaeda and both and the Islamic State. 
sure, they may be, they may not be, you know, this is part of the ebb and flow of what we call the ebb and flow of the jihad, right? They have their ups, they have their downs, but our inability to eliminate these groups, and then you have problems with, really to me is the problem through North Africa, Central Africa, West Africa, East Africa, the 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 weakness of the states, the inability to contain these organizations. Even if you could decimate the Islamic State in in Libya, the problems with the borders, they just you just can't really can't eliminate them for good. And we just this is a, a major failure, I think, in in dealing with these groups holistically. We might want to try and tackle them here in Mozambique, and sure that's working, but then we we left just enough around, and then there's enough problems in in surrounding countries where they could bleed back in and reestablish those networks. But I always hesitate to say they're you know they're um, returning. It's more so as regenerating. Um, but that's you know my my little uh issue with that statement i think you're 100 percent right bill and i think it leads me to a sort of a a kind of a, a an africa a whole of africa comment which is that you've got too many conflict zones in africa of different kinds you know we talked about eastern drc you know we talked about northern mozambique but libya is a conflict zone i mean it is a conflict zone it's just it's just a particularly um, uh, shapeless one. And we talked about Mali and Burkina Faso. And again, these are conflict zones. This is why the UN is moving so much of its attention to Africa right now. And I want to give a shout out to my former colleagues in UNOCT and Vladimir Voronkov, the Undersecretary General for this, because they have very definitely moved strategically towards focus on Africa. And there's a series of OCT engagements all around Africa uh, that are going on um, this year and next year, um, recognizing this point that you're making about the fact that these 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 problems don't go away and these groups are there and they're latent there even when they're not uh, in particularly eye-catching mode. And coming back to what Caleb was saying earlier when we were talking about the uh, the, the the countries bordering Burkina Faso and Mali, um, this needs a more imaginative approach than just CT whack-a-mole. That won't do it in these places because it does nothing about the underlying conflicts. There is a need for political resolution in places like Libya. There is a need for development and social uh, resilience being built in places like the littoral, uh, the, the Gulf of Guinea littoral. And the UN is trying to do that. It's trying to marry the CT agenda with the development agenda and with the rule of law agenda. And if they can bring that off, obviously with member states being critical to this as well and a huge amount of critical bilateral activity by member states, that's the only way that we win this because otherwise these are just accidents waiting to happen all around the continent. Could not agree more, Edmund. We're going to briefly jump. We mentioned the Islamic State in Yemen. That's the the Umar Qura office. Um, basically, Morbun. Would you agree with that, uh, Edmund? I know you did mention you believe that some funding is flowing through there. But what, what's your take quickly on Yemen? No, I think exactly what you just said. The, the office is largely moribund, maybe has a, re- a resilience or a relevance through its uh, relationship across the Red Sea to Somalia. That's always been the case. There's been a, co- a connectivity uh, between ISIS in Somalia and ISIS, uh, ISIS in, in, in the Horn of Africa and ISIS in Yemen. Um, but uh, in terms of ISIS's fortunes in Yemen, they've been on the decline for years now. I think they've just not managed themselves well in Yemen for a number of reasons. 
They got obsessed with the rivalry with Al-Qaeda. Wherever that happens, Al-Qaeda seems to win. Everywhere, you look around the world, um, and, and, and always in these remote provinces, it, it tends to be Al-Qaeda that is the stronger affiliate and is able to, to dominate. So Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, much stronger than ISIS-Yemen, and ISIS-Yemen was banging its head against AQAP, and I think that weakened it. And I think also, and I speak here a little bit from my sort of my own personal affection for and experience in Yemen, um, the Yemenis just don't like the ISIS message. They just they just, just find ISIS ugly. It's a death cult. It, it doesn't in any way engage with any sort of existing uh, social norms or tribal systems in, in Yemen. And I think ISIS, ISIS is, you know, it's not dead in Yemen. And we, we should never say that because that, that's where you, as you said, uh, you always end up by getting bitten when you say that. But uh, ISIS has been in a period of long-term decline in Yemen. Yeah, this is this is part of the inability to play well with others with the from the Al Qaeda standpoint. It really hurts in tribal societies um, like Yemen, like Afghanistan and Pakistan and places like that. Our last topic will be the Islamic State Khorasan province and the Al Sadiq office. We mentioned this briefly with funds flowing from the car office. In Somalia, this is um, al-Sadiq office manages uh, the Islamic State in Central and Southern Asia. What is the uh, state of play for for the Islamic State Khorasan province? Um, is it a threat to the Taliban? Is it, What's the threat to local, regional, and global security emanating from Khorasan province? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a great question, Bill. It's a complicated one. I mean, the picture in Afghanistan, as you well know, is so complicated. Um, and it's it's interesting the extent to which ISIS can sort of impose this global template on a conflict that has such strong dynamics and such a strong history of its own. Uh, really interesting to watch. Um, my understanding of where we are at the moment is that ISIS anticipates that it will be able to survive and thrive in Afghanistan, despite the fact that it is setting itself up in opposition to the Taliban. Um, I think they reckon that the Taliban will struggle, uh, will not be able to um, concentrate force against them in the way that was possible in the past. Uh, and obviously, you know, it was particularly true when we had the government of Afghanistan uh, backed by its NATO partners. Um, there, where when ISIS suffered severe setbacks at that time in Afghanistan, um, one of the key factors was uh, was government of Afghanistan and uh, NATO air power, um, and the fact that you could uh, you could support your ground operations um, against uh, ISIS Khorasan in that way. So what we're seeing now is ISIS Khorasan taking. Um, you know, sort of gradually sort of taking hold in some valleys, in some Salafist communities in eastern Afghanistan. It's the same broad area where they where they held territory before before they were displaced. Um, and at the same time, you've got this al-Siddiq office, which sits alongside ISIS Khorasan uh, and is headed up by this guy, Sheikh Tamim al-Kurdi, also known as Abu Ahmed al-Madani, and who seems to have a perfectly functional relationship with the emir of uh, ISIL K of ISIS Khorasan, um, uh, you know, who is uh, Sanaullah Ghaffari. Um, 
I've always been interested in whether their agendas are fully aligned, because if if Ghaffari wants ISIS to survive and ultimately thrive in Afghanistan, um, but uh, al-Kurdi wants uh, results quickly in Central Asia and Pakistan and India um, and in that sort of wider region, you know, how easy is it for them to sort of come together and say, okay, well, for that, for, for, us, for us both to succeed, this is what needs to happen. So far, the what member states tell us is that there's no evidence of friction between the two agendas. So they seem to be working okay together. And indeed, you know, whereas early on after the Taliban takeover, um, you know, there was that question mark over, well, is this a good po- policy of ISIS to, you know, to confront the Taliban so directly when the Taliban is so big and strong? Um but of course, the Taliban does have so many difficulties, leadership difficulties, extreme difficulties of prioritization, tribal difficulties, and the fear of losing defectors, you know, either foreign fighters or uh, Afghan Talibs uh, defecting to ISIS Khorasan. And I think that's part of what's giving ISIS the confidence to think that they can, that they can manage this. Um, so that's that's where I think it stands broadly in terms of the the dynamic between the two. Certainly, the Taliban are much bigger. They have the resources of a state um, at their disposal, but it's an impoverished state, and they've got a million claims on their time, and that makes it very difficult for them. And of course, because they won't honestly engage with the international community on this issue, um, you know, they're, they're not they're not counter terrorists, as you well know, Bill. We've had this conversation so many times before. The idea of the Taliban as a sort of counter terrorist partner is fanciful. They just don't tell the truth about this. You know, they were lying about the presence of Al Qaeda right up to the day that Al Zawahiri was taken out in Kabul, and then they've, they've just been trying to come up with a new lie since then that to sort of try to explain away this embarrassment that they've suffered. So you know, they're not going about it in a way that is rational. Their, their attitude to ISIS, I think, is they don't like it when ISIS are causing them direct problems, but I don't think they care when ISIS attack, um, you know, Hazara Muslims. I don't think they care when ISIS attack Sufi Muslims. I don't think they care when, when ISIS uh, attack um, in areas which are, which are, you know, in ethnic areas that, that the Taliban doesn't particularly care about. So I don't think they're even fully committed to the fight against ISIS. And of course, they're not honest about the strength of ISIS. They keep saying, oh, they're not an issue. It's all under control. Uh, when you know we see attack after attack that make it very clear that it's not under control. So I think this is a major worry. And I think over time, it can be, a th- well, I think it's already has the potential to threaten the neighbors. You know, we've seen those missile attacks on Uzbekistan and Tajikistan. Amateurish, not very effective. Um, you know, maybe didn't even hit any kind of target. Um, but still, you know, statement of intent, and also some uh, cross-border activity uh, into into Pakistan. So you know, that's already there as an issue, and the potential for ISIS K to develop an external threat capability that could project beyond the immediate region. I think we have to take seriously. Yeah, look, I, I have a lot of, lot to agree here. I, I, I think you and I may differ on the strength of the Taliban leadership and the organization, but you know, look, that's, you know, the, 
very little difference here in, in, in how we view this. I think the issue you discuss about the Islamic State Khorasan province attacking the Zara and the Sufis, I think that, that plays into the Taliban's hands. The Taliban can, they're going to have to turn these communities in some ways have to turn to, to the Taliban to become their protectors because who else do they have? But it also is a weakness, right? That these attacks can occur. I think it makes them look weak internationally, but I don't think it really impacts the Taliban internally. In, in some ways, it strengthens them. Um, the other issue with the Islamic State, uh, Khorasan province, um, they take advantage of, of an, a Taliban Al Qaeda's strength. This is a, this is one of those issues where our strength is also a weakness, right? Willingness to work with others and, and take stake sponsorship makes Al Qaeda stronger, but it's also a point of criticism, particularly the state sponsorship. Um, the IS, um, Khorasan province can, you know, they go out and they say, they say this in their propaganda. Look, they're a tool of the Pakistanis or they're seeking international recognition. Um, I think it helps their message. Um, rec- so it, it becomes a recruiting tool for them in some ways against them with the more virulent uh, jihadists in the region. Um, and also, um, I just think that the, you know, Pakistan particularly has a, there's a whole class of Pakistani jihadists that, uh, you know, groups like uh, elements of the Lashkari Jangvi, for instance, that are just want to slaughter the, any, any type of, uh, minority groups that, uh, uh, you know, don't adhere to their harsh version of Islam. So they, these, these groups are become a, um, a, a recruiting base for uh the islamic state and that's i think that's i think when you look at all of this put together it's what gives them the ability to um survive and regenerate their strength but it um i don't think it's enough to push them over the top with the taliban at least not in the short to the medium term but if the taliban becomes more compromising on issues i mean i realize we're focusing a lot on afghanistan but what happens in afghanistan and also impacts what's happening in pakistan as well as india say these are the major theaters when looking at this, um, and then also what happens with these groups works in groups like Tajikistan with Ansarullah and then the Turkestan Islamic Party in China, et cetera. We could go on and on. Islamic movement in Uzbekistan, obviously in Uzbekistan. This is where I think the Islamic State is trying to chip away from this base of support for the Taliban Al Qaeda alliance and use this to, to regenerate its strength. I think they've had. I would say moderate success in doing that, but I'm interested in your take on that, Edmund. I mean, I just 100% agree with you, Bill. I think everything you've just said, I think, is exactly right. Um, I mean, I, 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 I want to make the sort of the link again with Syria. You know, why are these groups present? They're present because they think that in the long term, the conditions will allow them to thrive. Um, and I think Al-Qaeda sees that in Afghanistan, for sure. Um, a lot of the other groups that are broadly aligned with Al-Qaeda and the Taliban also see that. But I think ISIS see it as well. And you can make the exact same point in Syria, you know, because there, there was a time when people used to say, well, why are ISIS and, you know, um, al-Nusra Front or uh, HTS or Haras al-Din, why are these guys in northwestern Syria where they're, you know, they're getting hammered, you know, they're getting bombed? Uh, from the sky, they're under multi, you know sort of pressure from all directions. Um, is it is it dangerous? Yeah, sure it is. Are they losing people? Yes, sure they are. But do they think that they're going to be able to survive and possibly eventually to prevail? Yes, they do. 
And that's definitely true in Syria, where you have a completely intractable political situation that just gives them the confidence that they will always be able to, you know, to sort of, uh, uh, you know, to find a haven in bad times and to uh, and to thrive in, in good times for them. Um, and I think Afghanistan's same point, you know, the point you made about the, the Taliban's, is the Taliban going to create a stable, prosperous, peace-loving, diplomatic Afghanistan? It doesn't look that way to me. And I don't think it looks that way to the the many, many extremist terrorist groups that are happily staying in Afghanistan. Yeah, absolutely. And, and real quick on Syria, you know, I think this was, this is, you know, could, could we just, I, I could only imagine what Syria would have looked like if that Al Qaeda Islamic state rift didn't happen. And then within Al Qaeda, the, basically the Al Nusra and uh, you know, the split within Al Nusra, right? The, the, this is where the factionalism, um, that occurred in Iraq and Syria really hurt them. What would that look like today if they fought as a united front? And if it wasn't a, um, you know, again, all these problems had occurred. I mean, well, obviously if the, all these problems weren't heard, we wouldn't be talking, devoting one episode to Al Qaeda in the UN report and one episode to the Islamic state in the, um, in, in, in your report as well. So I always find that fascinating. You know, I wish we could build a time machine and, and, you know, turn back the clock and, and, you know, play that one out and see where it went. Would they have had more success? Would a more unified, would they be able to stand up to the Syrian Russian attacks and the U S and Iraqi offensive, if they were more united, able to pull their resources instead of that factionalism that hurt these groups, you know, again, strengths and these strengths are often weaknesses for groups like this. And I think that's sort of been a theme of this show all day. So very much so. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, um, you know, that factionalism will probably continue. Um, but, you know, to some degree, Bill, I think we will see some of that sort of experiment that, that interests you. It's still to come, isn't it? Um, you know, the majority community in Syria does not want to be governed by Assad does not want to be governed by Kurds, does not want to be governed by Turks. And so, you know, eventually, what, what is going to become of Syria? You know, how, how will that play out in terms of a long-term uh, viable political scenario in Syria? And that, that's what worries me. Like, that's, what, that's, why, that's why in most of these uh, conversations we have, I, I come back to Syria as my biggest single worry. Yeah, I, I, I sort of saved it for last uh, for that reason. And I would also add this. A lot of, uh, you know, Sunni Iraqis don't want to be governed by Iranian supported Shia Iraqis, right? Like they perceive the militias and in, in, um, the Iraqi government as being Iranian backed. And so when you, you know, then you get a cross border problem. This is how this whole problem emerged. We're looking at what we're talking about in Iraq and Syria. That also applies to Afghanistan and Pakistan to, to you know, not to a degree in, in, um, to a T. Um, you know, all these issues, they just, you know, you can't look at these problems as a single, we're, we just target this group in this specific country, this problem is over. There's overlying issues. You laid that out so well when talking about UN efforts in, in Africa. We just never, it seems that I know this realizes a much bigger issue, but it seems like in the 20 years of war, the US and, and Western coalitions uh, never wanted to address the war in a holistic manner. And that's why we're talking about it 20, almost 21 years later after 9-11. I just, listeners, Caleb had to drop out on us. 
Edwin, anything else to add um, to the discussion? I don't think so. No, I mean, I think you just summed, summed up the situation beautifully, Bill. And no, we, we, we covered the covered it really well. It was great, great having Caleb uh, bringing his expertise on Africa to bear. Um, and just really delighted to have, uh, you know, sort of completed the review of the report with you. Yeah, no, it's always a pleasure, and please join us again. And now that you're not with the UN, I'm, I'm interested in your take on the, the reports that's coming out, the things that are happening in the world. It's kind of it's going to be fun to get Edmund unplugged. Um, it already is fun, and um, yeah, it's uh, these issues aren't going away. Um, we we're looking forward to having you back on. Thanks again, Edmund. Thank you, Caleb, for joining us, and thanks everyone for for listening to today's episode, the Generation Jihad. Just a reminder, you can find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review, preferably a positive one. Thanks again, and we'll see you all again soon.